Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the 22nd Addiction, The Addiction Connection podcast. Addiction and, topic. Yeah, and this is actually the talk that we did actually as a noontime echo, I believe. Heritability and Genetics of Alcohol Use Disorder. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, this was this was a fun talk, I think, for you to put together. I think you got off in the weeds a lot, which tends to happen with you sometimes. And... But I think it turned into a really cool talk because of that. I think even the Charlie Reznikoff really liked the history, and I think that really helped it. But anyway, yeah, super fun talk to for you to put to to research, and then for me to have to type out. Yeah, well, not exactly. But uh, oh, the, really? <laughs> the big question really is: is it heritable, or is it genetic to get alcohol use disorder? And heritability is different than genetics. Heritability is kind of a measure of of how well differences in genes account for differences in traits. And it's kind of a statistical concept that describes how much of a variation in a given trait can be attributed to a genetic variation. So it's it's different because genetics are more affecting or being determined by genes, and it's kind of influenced by the origin of something and really how those qualities and characteristics are passed on from one generation to another by means of genes. So Okay, that was really kind of confusing. Yeah, it is kind of confusing. I think, so genetic is like your black and white chromosomes. Like, in, yeah, let's use your family, for instance. You know, like if you're going hemophiliacs, you're not going to have a hemophiliac female when you need two X chromosomes. It's just what it is. Correct. But like a male could have it because they only have one X chromosome. But heritability is how does it happen? How does it happen? Environmental factors can play in. So that's where alcohol fits in. You know, it's not a, oh, your mom and dad were both alcoholics, you are too. No, there's a lot of the environment that can play into that. Well, inheritability, it, you know, kind of addresses that population level correlation, that whole phenotypic variation and genotypic variation. So, you know, it's just different. And it's just going to give you those clues kind of as to the relative influences of nature and nurture, right? Complex traits. So nature and nurture. There you go. So it is. It's <laughs> Sometimes I read that and I go, I don't even know what I just said, but... Uh, it is. They're different. And I think that we need to look back to, I mean, really when you look at the whole history of alcohol, it's been around for a long time. It's not like it like, just showed up. I mean, it's even older than you by a few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were finding fermented grains and juices and honey things 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was just barely alive. <laughs> and uh, there had been some earliest documented things where alcoholic drinks were found 9,000 years ago in Neolithic China. So the Chinese, they were all over this whole alcohol thing almost 10,000 years ago. But it was, people didn't, it's weird to think that back, way back then. And at that time, they didn't even really quantify or qualify this as an alcohol use disorder or even realize people had an issue or even notice it followed in families. Like people just didn't notice that certain families drank more than other families. Well, maybe that long ago there weren't words to describe it. They'd be like, uh, "What's that mean? That means that whole family seems to like alcohol." No, they. But I think that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You have to see the one picture on this slide is like this caveman with a 
gut and he's burping and so that's where his weird it's like look at that group of cave people came from they seem to be getting a lot more grain fermented than the rest of us and really he also seemed to have a lot more fun at times yeah but (laughs) but aristotle way back and a guy by the name of plutarch who was also a philosopher they had actually mentioned this they had believed that alcoholics begat other alcoholics right so that people that had apparently an alcohol use disorder back then seemed to have other family members maybe uh, and they didn't really understand it but but clearly they had some concerns in some of their writings oh goody this side is my favorite so uh, chaucer um wrote the canterbury tales in 1476 and so he was a poet from the 1300s to the 1400s and often in a lot of his poetry, he used the word drunkaloo to talk about people who were dependent on alcohol, um, just kind of described it as a mental illness. It was organic. It was heritable. But he even in the Canterbury Tales, which is his most famous of all of his poems, talks about a drunkaloo and actually talks, talks about a wife and how even if she's wise or sober or drunkaloo, it doesn't really matter as long as she like takes care of her husband. Wow. I uh, I have never read that. There you go. So anyway, that's it's it's not even just philosophy. It's not even just the cavemen. It's even in poetry and kind of the arts as well. Mm. So where did the word alcoholism come from? Well, as far back as anybody can tell, it was first used by the Swedish public health official in 1849. And so it's been about 200 years, well, 180 years that this has kind of been around. And there had been some steps to maybe show that this was heritable and there was a, some notion that it might be a disease but really Sweden had had this long kind of complicated history of alcohol and and there was a lot of drinking in that uh, really in that whole society and according actually even now the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism 26.9% of people over the age of 18 have had significant binge drinking in the last month uh, in Sweden and so Sweden still has had this long history and in fact, even way back, they had some reference to the word alcoholism. This was interesting to me when you pulled this out in all the research, which was legit research, by the way, because you don't really think of Sweden and this, you know, had you thrown the word Ireland in there, I would have believed, you mm-hmm. know, like that's what everybody thinks. Um, so I don't know, my ancestors were maybe not the worst back in the day. Yeah. And actually, there had been some things written. Uh, there was actually something written in 1879 by a guy by the name of P.F. Long. That's P.F. Long. And he wrote something called Use and Abuse of Alcohol. And in it, he is quoted as saying, of all the inherited disease, and that's in quotation, seen in the children of alcoholics, 21% was directly due to alcoholism in parents. So this goes back to heritability. Yeah, it's like, so he's seeing these families that some of this stuff is just kind of winding through. But really, who was that first physician that kind of... So there's a couple. Thomas Trotter first clarified excessive drinking as a medical condition. He was of Scottish descent. So this were kind of, it was this condition. But our ever favorite, Dr. Benjamin Rush in 1784, was the first prominent physician of his time to see alcoholism as a disease. Yes. And this is where the squirrel runs by. And I totally got off in the weeds uh, when I first gave this talk, this whole this whole thing about Dr. Benjamin Rush and uh, whether or not he he was kind of a, a quack or he was a beloved healer. And we're not going to go into that because there's actually a podcast about it. Yeah, you can go back and listen to podcast number 13. 
you know, if you're a big history buff, if you really like kind of the weird things and the quackery things and the, you know, the medicinal things used back in the day before anything like penicillin was even invented, that podcast is just a super funny one because it really just goes through this dude. But yeah, podcast 13. Yeah. And just out of interest, he is also tied up with the whole Lewis and Clark escapade across our country. So listen to that one. Super cool. So back to the history of alcohol use disorder. So they started working on different different things to kind of ferret out really the heritability or the genetics of this whole thing. And one of the first things that was done was actually this early classic familial study, 1909. And it was called Her- Heredity in the Causation of Inebriety. Inebriety. What's in that Diet Mondu over there? <laughs> Just all Diet Mondu. Uh, and really what they found is that they, they took over 4,000 alcoholics and 70% of these alcoholics that had been treated over a 35-year period in this guy's practice had a positive family history. And this is actually in the British Medical Journal. So this was one of those first familial studies where they just looked at this whole group. You don't want to just like stick to one study, of course. I mean, look at COVID. How many do we see about the age drug all the time? But in the last 80 years, this has been replicated many, many times, the, the same roughly 70% with the familial um, history. So this is this has been proven a lot. Yeah, everybody's kind of found the same thing. And over time, there haven't been you know, a lot of major studies this way. But then again, in 19, 1939, there was uh, Jellick and jo- Jolifee. And this is a study that we see frequently kind of looked back on. And they were the first really to suggest that alcoholism was kind of this hero- heterogeneous disease. Heterogeneous. Man, I'm having trouble talking today. And uh, and they, they felt that, in fact, there were familial and non-familial forms. Uh, one of the first people that really did that. And the authors actually noted that there was really no evidence that either had a genetic component, at least at that time. Right. But then you jump way forward to 1987, when I was actually alive already. Um, observed familial does not necessarily mean heredity, hereditary. So it's that whole, are there genes that kind of push to this? Yep. Nurture, nature, genetics. So fancy. So then there was these twin studies that were actually done because everything has to go back to twin studies when you're looking at any kind of genetics or heritability. And so this... Kaj in 1960 did the study in alcohol abuse. He estimated heritability in his study, 37% male and 25% female kind of fit this heritability. And, you know, so it's, I guess it's more likely to be inherited if, if, you know, you're a female or a male, excuse me. Yeah, males, we get all the bad stuff. COVID, heritable, <laughs> heritable alcohol use disorder. Male pattern balding. <laughs> yeah. So twin studies, one of the coolest twin studies that I came across was when they uh, they clinically defined alcoholism. And actually, this was done, it always looks like Herbeck, but it's Herubeck uh, and Omen in 1981. They did a study this that was- This is what Ken Herbeck did before his baseball <laughs> yeah. career. Yeah. I'm just kidding. It's not the same. Yeah, I think they spell it differently. But <laughs> they actually, this was a VA study. And this was really cool because they went back and took male twin pairs, 15,000. So we're talking a ton of kids. Well, probably more than a ton. And they looked at monozygotic and they looked at uh, the dizygotic. And what they found was that twins who who actually were monozygotic had much higher concordance for the disease. Okay, so this was really one of those studies that really kind of made it pretty clear that this was an issue. So yeah, identical twins versus just yeah. happen to have two siblings that were in the same uterus. 
Yeah. And interestingly, there was a guy by the name of Murray and uh, and his friends that did a much, much smaller one on 56 twin pairs. And they didn't really see that difference in monozygotic and dizygotic twins. But again, really small in comparison to the 15,000 that Harubek and Ullman in 1981 did. So after you do twin studies, you often do adoption studies because this is where you can see, well, if it's genetic, it should show up even if the child was adopted out. And so uh, they did this to see is this a genetic or a non-genetic or, or environmental type thing. So the first study done on uh, along the adoption study side was by a person by the last name of Rowe in 1944. And they looked at 49 children who had been adopted. 27 had had a patient or parent with alcohol use disorder and only slightly more children in the group with the parent who had alcohol use disorder developed the disease. So it really doesn't seem to have mattered based on this adoption study. There was just a slight increased chance if um, you had had a parent who had alcohol use disorder. However, again, very small numbers. Yeah. And then along came Goodwin et al. And he's actually got a bunch of studies that he had done. But this one really went from 1973 to 1977. Uh, those were good years, by the way. Uh, and this was a larger study on, on adopted children, and it had controls. And so that was really the difference. They had 133 male and 79 female adoptees that had at least one biologic parent with alcohol use disorder, and they had very well-matched controls. And really their results showed that 5% of the controls developed alcohol use disorder, whereas 18% of the adoptees developed alcohol use disorder. And again, most of those excess were in males. So this is it. this is where you see a study like this, and you're like, okay, well, why did the adoptees develop more often than the ones who stayed in the original home? Is that just part of that whole increased stress from the adoption? Or, I mean, you could go on and on with coming up with little hypotheses on why, but yeah, it's 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 all complicated, especially when you're kind of comparing genetics versus in, in nature versus nurture again. Yeah, and then shook it. Oh. And it his, looks like Shuck It, like Chuck It, stuff that Shuck It at Al in 1972. Yeah, that one. Yeah. So 164 half-siblings of 69 alcoholic parents. Concordance for alcoholism was greatest in the siblings who shared the alcoholic parent, regardless if they live with that parent or not. So if you shared a parent with the alcohol use disorder, you're more likely to also have alcohol use disorder, even if you didn't live with that parent. Yeah. So... Just continuing on. That's all I can say is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there was Francis et al. in 1984. They did another family study, which actually kind of hinted that at that whole heterogeneity of this whole thing of alcohol use disorder. And basically what they did is they took about 2,200 male alcoholics. It's always guys. Um, and they easier had, to find. Geez. And it's always men. And uh, they found that first-degree relatives, if you had a first-degree relative – that had an alcohol use disorder, your prognosis was much worse. And, and then, I, are you going to go or not? I was just going to make sure people understood what first degree relative was, like a sibling, a child, or a parent. Yes. I think probably everybody knew that but you. But you don't want to – I mean, some people might think that involves like grandparents and aunts and uncles because some people do. So I just want you to people to understand that this is looking at just that – closer nuclear yeah. thing. And there was definitely a positive correlation to the number of affected relatives and prognosis. So if you had three or four first-degree relatives, you were really heading that direction. So I think that was a great study that just showed really how that first-degree relative could affect your risk. Right. So it points a lot more to that nature 
aspect, the whole genetic component. And then, excuse me, just before that study came out, it actually kind of, this, these two studies go so well together, Pinnich et al. Familial alcoholics had a younger age of onset. So if it was running in your family, you were more likely to start drinking sooner with issues sooner. And then you had a more disease, more severe disease as you progressed. And whether it's more severe just because or more severe just because you started earlier. Don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Now, the newer twin studies have just gotten much more complex. Clearly, I can't understand what's going on here, but I'm going to try to explain it. Uh, It won't go well. But there's a guy by the name of Kendler, and actually the picture of him, uh, he kind of looks like the dudes who who came up with whole DNA, what DNA was, because he's got that whole double Double helix helix right next to his picture. (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, I invented this too. But no, he did a study that suggested the frequency of heavy drinking and intoxication has a greater shared genetic overlap with alcohol problem measures than the frequency of alcohol use. So do you want to explain that? So if you're drinking more, you're more likely to, it's more likely to be related to genetics rather than drinking more often. You actually did that pretty well. Yeah. So a drink a night, not necessarily going to be a heritable kind of deal. It's, it's the heavy drinking, the binge drinking, which reminds me of that patient you had once. Yes. So there appears to be, you know, several genetic factors that influence the difference the different measures of alcohol consumption. And there's really a high genetic correlation with quantity of use and the frequency of heavy drinking in families. So if you're drinking, binge drinking every other day or on the weekends, rather than just, again, a drink a night. Yeah, very, very, very much genetic correlation. So what has low correlation? The frequency of alcohol. So again, just having one a day and doing it every single day has very low correlation with genetics but having a lot less frequently and having significant issues with that, much more genetic. And, you know, there was a podcast. We've done a couple different podcasts on this and the amount and what it it all, alcohol use disorder, um, uh, right around the same as that 13, actually. Um, So about how much you can drink is kind of the the limits, and we talk about that back then. So, yeah. but what they found in this this twin study, this this Kendler study, is that there's not a single gene that's responsible for the overlap between consumption and problem use. So they're still trying to ferret that down. I mean, we have so many different genes. I mean, you'd think that they would have a lot of different components. Yeah. Now the cool thing nowadays is to do a linkage study, which again I probably know even less about this. But the linkage studies are kind of attempting to identify these broad regions of the genome that are associated with kind of these large increases in risk for a disorder. So linkage really refers to the observation that really two genetic markers on the same chromosome are often inherited together, and so you can track them. And uh, what they do with these linkage studies is really demonstrate that they've demonstrated that the, the risk locus for alcohol on chromosome 4Q which encodes for alcohol dehydrogenase, is probably one of the biggest uh, and most obvious genetic changes. Uh, and they also have shown that the complex kind of polygenetic biology of alcohol use disorder is going to be hard to describe, right? I mean, it's, it's not just one thing, but they have, they have demonstrated without a doubt that this 4Q is that whole alcohol dehydrogenase, which is fairly common. I think we're about to talk about that. We are. There's one more type of study, these candidate gene association studies, another one of those kind of studies that's just super complex, but they're trying to find associations between different genes and it's kind of, they use linkage studies to try to break it down like, okay, if all these genes are in this 
linkage area, which ones might actually be the genes specifically that can, you know, kind of like that whole 4Q thing. But what they found is that the strongest associations that have to do with alcohol are, again, on the metabolism type areas. So it's not just this is the alcohol use disorder gene. It's more the metabolism of alcohol, which we will now jump to. Yeah. All right. Close your eyes and bear with us. No, don't close your eyes because if you're driving or running oh, or that's doing right. something, you probably shouldn't do yeah. that. So everybody remember that alcohol is converted into acetaldehyde and that's converted into acetate. And just remember that from alcohol to acetaldehyde, you need uh, alcohol dehydrogenase to convert that. And it goes from acetaldehyde to acetate, you need acetaldehyde dehydrogenase. Right. The, the bottom line in all that is if you have a buildup of acetaldehyde, that's where you get all the symptoms of being flushed, tachycardic, nauseous. And so there's these little things called single nucleoid polymorphism SNPs um, that can kind of alter how this alcohol metabolism happens. Yeah, so just imagine that if you don't have a lot of acetaldehyde dehydrogenase or it slows down the how it goes to acetate. So as you pile that up, of course, you get that whole thing she talked about. But you can also have it with alcohol dehydrogenase, where you can have a variant where maybe you very quickly go from alcohol to acetaldehyde. And as you can imagine, uh, that can change things. Correct. You're not going to explain it, are you? No, it's so complicated. Um, I might have to put this into slideshow form because it, it's at least played out a little bit easier. Um, so basically, I will get to this. Give me one second. Okay. So yeah, if you get fast to get to the acetaldehyde, but you're slow to break down from that, that's why you have this buildup of acetaldehyde so you feel like crap. So East Asians, some European Americans, some African Americans, it's all these different variants, and who cares what those are? But these people have a decreased risk of alcohol use disorder because they spend more time with acetaldehyde, which Correct. is what makes you feel crummy. Yep. So just one little change or two little changes can really, can really just change what your experience with alcohol is. Uh, and in fact, much of that response with that particular disorder is much like antabuse. And so we use antabuse to actually make people feel kind of icky uh, because they get a lot of acetaldehyde. Yeah, so yeah, antabuse blocks that aldehyde dehydrogenase, so it prevents that breakdown from acetaldehyde into acetate and then kind of leaves them, again, stuck with excess acetaldehyde. So it looks like this variant that only East Asians have. But again, if you're feeling crummy, you have a decreased risk of alcohol use disorder. But think about it a little bit differently. What if you can't get alcohol to turn into acetaldehyde and you don't metabolize things? Well, you may drink more and have a higher risk of alcohol use disorder because you do get the those effects which might originally feel like pleasure uh, early on in your drinking night, but you don't stop drinking and you, you, don't you really have more tendency to go down the wrong road. Correct. And then if you go quickly from that acetaldehyde, the one that makes you feel crummy, you go quickly from that to acetate, you also have an increased risk of drinking more just because, again, you're not stuck with all that excess stuff. Yeah, you feel great. Anyway. So, yeah. And so, you know, they've done some work as well with the native populations. And, and really, they don't, ha they don't carry these variants. I think uh, that's, there's people that have thought that they, they may have, but they do not. Um, and there's really, so there's no real findings uh, regarding the alcohol metabolism to explain the incidence of alcohol use disorder in the native population. So, that does not appear to be um, that type of an issue. So yeah. now we move to the last and final kind of studies that are be done, being done, the most complicated of them all, the genome-wide association studies, which I can 
even just barely explain because they just get so much more complex. It's just super cool. They take all these genes, they look at the whole genome, like every single thing that makes us who we are. And they don't really have, they never even went into it thinking, oh my gosh, it's this, this, or this. They just kind of looked at the genes and said, what happens? No hypothesis. They're winging it. <laughs> Sounds like what we do a lot. Every day. <laughs> exactly. So they're trying to just find, they compare thousands and millions of people to see how it ferrets out. What do these association studies look like? Which ones tend to all have variants that are similar that could potentially lead to alcohol use disorder or whatever. Um, so they're basically trying to just look at this. And so when you look at that and you put enough people down, um, maybe we can find that. But what they found is that they're actually finding more things in the genome that gives protective effects rather than those which predispose. So this is where we were just kind of talking is if you don't break things down the right way or too fast or too slow, you end up having these crummy responses so you have a less chance so that's protective they've not been able to really pinpoint the predisposition so the whole this is the gene that makes you an alcoholic mm. did you get that i did now there was one study and i i'm not even sure if this uh, galen neuropeptide study that they did that was actually an interesting one where they actually showed and I, was that a genome-wide study because mm -hmm. they basically said that this uh that they what they found through these things is that neuropeptide galen actually affects alcohol intake, and that there's no real difference in high or low alcohol intake. It it just can be, uh, it can enhance the effect to alcohol intake. And so, uh, so when you when that's you, one that's kind of around now that people are talking about. Right. So rather than just looking at the gene itself, they find these things that can alter the gene. So they have these like enhancers. So if you edit this galen in, kind of like like mascara it's an enhancer right so if you if you edit in this enhancer so you put on the really good black mascara you actually have increased alcohol intake when you mess up this enhancer so you shut the enhancer off you you know use the makeup remover you have decreased alcohol intake so that's kind of where the studies are going now i mean that was 2019 only so um again it's all this variations rather than a a equals B equals C. Are you going to even talk about CRISPR technology? That's what I just did. The oh. altering the enhancer and well, editing it in. Yeah, I know, but you didn't mention what it was okay, called. Sorry, CRISPR. Yeah. Anyway, CRISPR technology is how you put the mascara on or wash it off. Perfect. <laughs> Man, that was that was difficult. Uh, but the, again, the genetics of alcohol use disorder, really very interesting. And, and we have to assume that as time goes on, we're going to get a lot more information as the years progress here so yeah i don't really know if that's you know positively reassuring or negatively reassuring to people um if they're looking at their genetics and their risk but no one's being studied and it's not a black and white i think clearly i think most people will look at their families and you know we all have something in our families and many of us have this so uh, always good to understand that some of this stuff, again, all of addiction, 50% genetic. Right. So just be aware of it. 40 to 60% is the number they always throw out. <laughs> Little vague. So I think we're about done for today. And again, you might want to look into Dr. Rush, podcast 22. 13. 13. <laughs> this is podcast 22. <laughs> okay. I was only nine off, eight off. No, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> I'm a lot off today. That's true. All okay, right. So we'll let Battle Lakes take over. We want to thank everybody for listening.
With a merry man of Skyrim So sturdy and so stout When the day is done, when it's time for fun We'll drink and sing and shout You weak river milk drinkers Can't let your throats run dry Cause it's just one drink that we will sink Until the day we die Drinking mead in the halls of white run The maids and the men We swig our brew until we spew Then we fill our mugs again You can keep your filthy scuba It makes our bellies bleed So we raise our flag into another dead dragon There's just one drink we need Lord Mead Lord Mead After long hard days of hunting and of war Our throats are tired and thirsty and our bodies drenched in gore But we won't waste our evenings feeling tired of feeling spent We perk right up when we breathe in that wholesome honey scent That's cereal-dillard brandy, too fruity for these tongues You can keep your fancy alto wine, it tastes like hoarder dung Balmora blue tastes great to you, but here we like it plain Just fill my mug with a mighty jug of honey, hearts and grain To another dead dragon, there's just one drink we need